Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Okay, let's get right to it, shall we? Um, Haggai uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came back through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehezadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So that verse 8 is a really important verse this morning. Verse 9, you expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehezadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehezadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month and the second year of King Darius. All right, that's a lot. Let's, let's pray. But before I begin, I, w- I would like to say to you, as best as I'm able, as we begin another book together, that I dearly love you. Uh, My service to you continues to be a privilege, and it continues to be my privilege to preach the Bible to you week by week. So I just want you to know that as we get started. All right, let's pray. Father, as we begin to learn through this book, please, God, may your grace abound in extraordinary ways so that I might preach in Christ's name as Jesus would preach to the praise of your glory, the good of your people, and the salvation of many souls. Please, God, give all of us grace to listen, to enjoy, to obey, and share as you show us how this whole book and the whole Bible is always pointing to Jesus. 
and that we would live at the foot of the cross for God only at the foot of the cross are, are our bouts with our self-righteousness dealt with and, and our punctured subhuman view sometimes God of ourselves when we think far too a little of ourselves in Christ that's dealt with as well in order that our only boast and our only hope and our greatest joy is no one else but Jesus for whose sake we pray amen all right so we're gonna get right to the first point which is a really long introduction but I tried to hide it from you in the form of a first point out with the old in with the new now as you hear the the text read this is what I wonder I wonder if you have listened to sermons um, will say in the context of the book of Haggai being taught or even a passage similar to this from from other places in the Old Testament and if you have like me you may have heard this book preached in two different ways first you may have experienced this book used as a kind of fundraising tool. So let's say a fundraiser is needed for some church project or church building, or a fundraiser is needed before more funds. And in light of that, this book is brought out into the open and used as a tool to motivate people to give. If you have a look down at your Bibles, verses 2 through 6, that is easy pickings for that sort of thing. Verses 8, 9, and 10 as well. And the idea is that they say, put God first, which is true. And then they suggest something like, you're probably not putting God first, or you're not putting God first enough, which may or may not be true, with the added, which is probably why things are not so great for you, so great for your houses and things like that, or your house is so big, you know, who do you think you are? And that then coalesces or merges into the second kind of sermon that is often unfortunately preached from this book, which says, because you're not putting God first, then you don't have good things, you don't have better things, or you don't have enough things, and, and you're right now things are all ruined. Now, if we're going to be really honest, most of us have probably had that thought in one part of our existence or another, and you might be having it right now. So look at verse 9. You've expected much, but you see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own houses. Okay? So there's that. You don't have enough things, or you have too nice of things. And that's verse 2. These people say the time hasn't come to build the Lord's house. It's and then the question, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? And we'll learn more about that word next week. But just to let you know, that means that they had to export fine wood at high cost to build their homes in Jerusalem. And so intentionally or unintentionally, they equate the Lord's house there in that time with the Lord's house here in their time and presenting God and his purpose partially and not in God's fullness so they go on they say because God is in some place in your life other than first place that's the reason why things are not so good for you so you have you know you have nothing or you just don't have enough of God's blessing and you just pick the place in your financial realm and your relationships and your life and the quality of life whatever it is you know they're pushing or 
you have too much, and the house of God is suffering. I was, I was looking at stuff, and it was a sermon that I'm glad I'm not preaching this morning, but the question was, do you trust God enough to put him first? Okay, let me just say, what if the morning that I hear that question, that I'm going to be honest, and like, no, I do not trust him enough. Right now, I don't. So what's the answer then? So what happens in a sermon like that, they're totally neglecting the biblical truth that we live in a fallen world and as fallen people surrounded by other fallen people and things will never quite be, never be quite right here, that injustice is a real thing, that there's an ebb and flow in any real meaningful life and the battle with indwelling sin, one of which is greed and coveting, is a real thing and sometimes we win that battle and sometimes we lose. Nevertheless, they say, if you would just put God first, which again is true, we all know that, then everything, you know, would just be to the nines for you. Therefore, their conclusion in a blanket statement kind of way is, you know, just give to the thing that we're presenting or just do the thing that we're saying and just put God first, you know, and good golly, Miss Molly, if you do, then you're going to have an awesome life and God is going to bless you because you are finally now putting him first or you're putting him first more than you ever have before. Now, if you're listening to that, that is a classic synagogue sermon, a moralistic, excuse me, a moralistic therapeutic sermon. It happens quite often in American pulpits. It happens almost all the time on religious TV networks. But it's not the truth. It's not the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's not even true to the text in the context of the whole Bible, the gospel, because that sermon like that never takes you to Jesus Christ and the cross. And it makes God sound like he's two different kind of gods, right? So all of us, you know, we wake up some mornings and we're like, hap, hap, happy. And we wake up other mornings and like, you know, just say the wrong thing and I'll blow up like a missile. And so we try to, you know, God sounds like two different kinds of gods. I mean, just, did you hear the song, the beautiful songs that we were singing? And then you get to a chapter like that. And if you take it wrongly, it's like, okay, that God is better than this God. But there's more. In a less than true way, the, the, the synagogue sermons, they contextualize the text for that person, for that preacher's, or for that church's own agenda. Right? You understand, hey, hey, we need funds. I got a great idea. Let's go to the book of Haggai. Therefore, what these sermons do not do, it does not show you the fitness of Jesus Christ to resolve sin, to forgive sin, and to strengthen us not to sin. It takes you away from the beauty of the new covenant because you're just stuck in the old. It does not relate to God through Jesus Christ. Rather, it forces us to relate to God through our works. And in that, the grace of God is just blocked. And a sermon like that never gets us past the old covenant in application. The old covenant which has been abolished. The old covenant which was incomplete. The old covenant which... And now I'm quoting from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 7. The old covenant was the ministry that brought death. Verse 9, the ministry that brought condemnation. Okay, why death and why condemnation? To point us to the dramatic need of a Savior, a substitute, someone far better than us, who's always put God first, and to kill our self-righteousness, and to kill our sin. Therefore, in those synagogue sermons, it's a crossless lesson. It's stuck in a certain place in redemptive history. 
It brings death and condemnation where the fitness is going to be all up to you. Right? Because Haggai is in the Old Testament. It's an Old Covenant context. And I hope you understand that. Because that, you know, something like that would be like using a crank starter from the 1920s to start up your 21st century car. I mean, we appreciate the fact that crank starters could start cars. We appreciate the Old Testament. But now we push buttons and we turn keys to start cars. And it would be kind of weird to go out there and do the... Because nothing will happen. So, let's say you're in the context of a synagogue sermon and, you, and you're like, you know what, I am a cotton-headed ninny-mugging. I'm not giving enough. And then you think the answer is to put God first, or even more first, added to that, you, you know... I'm going to do more than ever before. As if your salvation, as if your rescue, as if your, your key or the key, excuse me, to God's blessing is you. As if the way that you become right with God and earn, earn his blessing. See, in that you have, as a New Testament Christian, somehow worked yourself into God's favor. You ought to be like, that should give you goosebumps. The old covenant had a place in redemptive history. Its place is past. It's, it was part of the story, but it was an incomplete story. So we are not unhitched from the Old Testament in any way at all. We just now see what it reveals. Jesus Christ. And that's, again, that's not the same thing as saying, okay, we don't have to obey God anymore. And whatever God says in the Old Testament, we can just chuck it. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is simply ask yourself, when have your works ever been enough for God? You know the, the catechism questions, how does, God, how does God relate to his children? He relates to them as forgiven and cleansed people. On what basis? On the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And loved ones, if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, that's how God sees you for this reason. In and of ourselves, under you know, the all-seeing eye of God, who sees not just this, but he sees the heart, he knows that we still have sin. But, and this is the beauty of the gospel, this is never going to change. By the imputation of Jesus Christ's righteousness, given to our account, all the riches of Jesus and all the provision of Jesus is ours, both in his passive obedience at the cross and his active obedience by just doing the law day by day in his earthly ministry perfectly. And now all his perfection and all his righteousness are ours. So when you read a text like that, what we read, that doesn't change. So, so okay, you hear those synagogue sermons, and it's a problem for me. It's a big problem for me, and it should be for you. You know, it's like, I, I like vegetables. It's like you get a plate of food and it's like shoving your vegetables. No, keep the vegetables on the plate. Because somehow in those synagogue sermons, the, the substitutionary work, the, the mediating work of Jesus Christ before the throne of God means nothing to them. Because Jesus is the one who stands before God and he always put God first and he did it on our behalf. And he's the only one who has ever been perpetually selfless. And again, he did it on our behalf. Does that not mean nothing to you? Right? That's what you'd want to say. So, 
Because Jesus Christ stands before God on our behalf, this is what 2 Corinthians says. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Every promise and every blessing is a yes and amen in Christ. In Christ and not our works. So the gospel is, is that God blesses bad people, right? Those who have been saved by our grace and the ongoing implications of the gospel is, is that God still blesses bad people. Again, this is why I say, in a synagogue sermon, your works are the key, not only for your salvation, but for your blessing and your progress and not the work of Jesus Christ. In the synagogue, Jesus Christ was never preached. The need for a savior to save you from your sins, from the fact that you do not put God first, that was never mentioned. In a synagogue sermon, no one ever says, God imputes our sin to himself. Praise his name. Rather, in a synagogue sermon, it's like do, and do, and do, and do, and do. Because everybody knows, beginning with God, that you're not doing enough. A long time ago, I quoted from this book, Why Johnny Can't Preach. It was written by T. David Gordon. He thought he was dying of cancer. He was a, he was a teacher at a seminary. And so he was just like, I'm dying, so I'm going to write a book. It's going to make every evangelical mad, but I'm going to be dead, so I won't be around to live with the fallout. He didn't die. <laughs> but this is what he said. He writes, if you read Luther's comments about his life as a monk before his conversion, you'll find Luther talking about how all he ever heard from the church was do this and don't do that. He did not hear that there was a mediator, a redeemer, who had rescued those who had done wrong from the coming judgment of God. Oh, it might have been mentioned as an aside from time to time, but the dominant theme that he heard again and again was do this, don't do that, and do better and do more. And then he adds, Go listen to the typical sermon in a typical evangelical church and ask whether, whether Luther would think if he, were, if he were present that he was still in Rome. So perhaps somewhere in the sermon is some mention of Christ, perhaps at the end of you know, an obligatory comment, and of course we couldn't do this apart from the grace of God. But such a lame comment for such a great Savior, I'm adding that. Such a lame comment from a great Savior cannot rescue an essentially moralistic sermon and make it redemptive. It reduces life and religion to technique and suggests that a sinner can change his ways if they just had the right method or just the right information, if they were just thinking straight, until it pushes Jesus Christ out of the realm of the listener and replaces him with them. And now Jesus becomes the means to your best life. You see, total depravity, reminding people that the preaching of the law, according to Romans 7, stirs up instinctively undesirable actions. It stirs up what it provides. That's what Paul taught in Romans 7. It stirs up the impulse to disobey so that the more a person sets themselves up to keep the law, they find themselves transgressing it. But either not obeying it, or perhaps worse, obeying it simply to justify themselves so that the cross is not a pillar in every sermon now let's think because that was jesus remember the rich the rich young ruler the good samaritan remember the pharisee and the tax collector what must i do to be saved 
The law is a hammer and it smashes any hope of self-righteousness. Jesus gives them the impossible thing that they might fall into his arms and be saved and blessed. But the rich young ruler walks away and the scribe, the teacher of the law, we don't know what happened to him. Loved ones, people do not change by saying change. People change by the grace of God, by telling them the good news of Jesus Christ, what it means, why it matters, who he is, what he's done, and why he has done it, and what happens to a person when they become a new creation, no longer under any form of condemnation, and not a walking contradiction, partly fact and partly fiction. Now, in a sermon, we'll just say a gospel sermon, is sin that confronted? Absolutely. There's no good news without some bad news. But in a synagogue sermon, you walk out of the church the hero. And you say something like, I'm going to put God first. And you say that, that coming from an Old Testament context or Old Covenant context, which has been replaced. And so you can say, because of you, we read it here, I put God first. And then boy, oh boy, here comes all the blessing. Loved ones, sometimes obedience brings blessing. But sometimes obedience brings pain and trouble. We need only to look at the life of Jesus and the life of Paul to set that straight. So let's just play a game here when Marsha, mythical Marsha, she's a single mom with a bunch of kids, and she's listening to a synagogue sermon out of Haggai, and she's wondering, will that work for me? You know, will that work for me? Marsha needs to hear, sweetheart, that doesn't work at all, not that way. And besides, Marcia, you're in Christ now. Let's talk about the good news of what that means and why it matters and how terrifically false is the justification that says you can't accomplish much in life without plenty of blessings and plenty of money and plenty of provision. So you, girl, you go get your gift. You would never want to tell her that. You would tell her, dear, dear Martha, and I'm going to quote from him, your worth is not in what you own. Not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. Your worth, Martha, is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. And then you would tell Martha, with all the love in your heart, no, girl, you just go rest in that truth. Just rest in that truth. But on the other side of that stick, what about Jimmy? Because Jimmy is pretty sure he's putting God first. Because look how great Jimmy's life is. All his ducks are in a row and there's plenty of everything. And Jimmy loves to tell people, oh, you, I put God first. I put God first. I put God first. So that people can say, that Jimmy, oh boy, he puts God first. But only God knows that Jimmy sometimes entertains that dark thought. Man, man, if people would just put God first like me. Because Jimmy likes to be the hero. So a synagogue sermon, which I suggest to you are abundant, is like a Twinkie, right? Don't, have you ever had a Twinkie? You get all that sugar and all that cream, you know what happens to you? <laughs> right? You get a little high because you've done a little good. But what comes up has to come down. This is Paul from Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law, one translation, by keeping the rules, have been alienated from Christ. This is the point. 
If I get you all jacked up on your works to be justified, in a sense, to justify God caring for you and blessing you in your common life by your works, then I alienate you from Jesus Christ. You know, oh sure, you know, we might get a little more from you or a little more out of you, and you might feel better for a moment, but there is alienation there. And since Jesus is, more, is worth more than anyone in anything, I would have failed you no matter how good you feel in your obedience. Because I made the end result of your obedience to be a passion for what you need or a passion for yourself and not a passion for Jesus Christ. And there is a massive difference. And loved ones, again, we need only look to Jesus here. Remember the parable of the prodigal son where the son who stayed home and did apparently everything right could not stand it when his brother who apparently did everything wrong but was forgiven and blessed by his father and brought back into the family with all the rights and privileges that he had forfeited. But now, before he ever started being good, before he ever started being good, dad gives a party and God, dad gives a ring. You're back in. You have all the rights. You have all the privileges. That's a gracious father giving back to his repenting son everything. And that's the gospel. It didn't depend on the kid. It depended on the dad. That's the God of the Bible. That is the God of all grace. He is faithful even we are, when we are unfaithful to him. And that's our first point. Out with the old, in with the new. Haggai takes place in a certain place and time in God's people's history. The temple is needed then. The day is going to come when no stick and brick temple is needed, just the Messiah, a flesh and blood person, Jesus Christ. So to try and raise from the ashes the old covenant solution to a new covenant, if you would, Christian, is confusing at best and actually hinders maturity and increases immaturity even if they are obeying all the precepts. We understand that even if they're obeying every one. Therefore, even in the preaching of the Old Testament, this is a Paul again, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be obtained, could be kept, if you would, by rule keeping, then Christ died for nothing. All right, out with the old, in with the new. Second point, the story behind the story. Okay, so all of that that we just said in Haggai here, he's coming out of a context. In 586 BC, because of Israel's persistent unbelief, They violated the terms of the Old Covenant. The Lord brought the Babylonian army in judgment against his own people. God, in the Old Covenant, said, if you don't, then I will. And he did. And he used a disobedient people, Babylon, the Babylonian people, to judge his disobedient people. The major part of that judgment, and this is really important, is that, number one, the temple was destroyed. Two, the Davidic king was removed. Three, the royal city, Jerusalem, demolished. God's chosen people were exiled from the promised land, and lots of people died. So if you read Daniel and Ezekiel, you'll find that the best and the brightest of God's people, they were exiled to Babylon, while those who remained, listen carefully, they were few in number, they were very low in status, they were poor in fortune, and they were lacking in skill. However, against all hope, In 538 B.C., Cyrus, the father, verse 1 there, of Darius, he issued an edict that said that some of the exiles could go back to Jerusalem and they could rebuild the temple. 
Cyrus himself said that I will pay for the cost. And then he wrote a letter to all his state governors or the other nations around them. And they, he said, you should contribute as well money, but you should also contribute supplies so that they could build or rebuild the temple. Okay, so that would be something like the President of the United States saying, I'm going to give a check to help X, and then I'm going to write a letter to all the governors and say, I want you to help X too. Now, when they go back home, on some level, it's, it's low-key and it's a big disappointment. Why? Because when God's people left Egypt out of the Exodus to go into the Promised Land, there were like 3 million-plus people headed there. Now they're coming out of exile and there's less than 50,000 returning to the promised land. However, the 50,000 people went to work and in two years they were able to lay down the foundation. But, and this is, you know, this is a recurring story in the Bible, there's some people who do not want them to build the temple. So, the, so, so they use the same old tricks, the fear and threats and misinformation and condemnation to try to stop the temple to being built. And just don't forget that that temple was built because a king, a Persian king, Cyrus, said, go back and build the temple. Just as an aside, because that's how evil usually operates, very rebellious against all forms of authority. So there was the earthly king saying, go build. And there was the heavenly king saying, king of kings, go build. But again, the bad people said, we don't want you to build. Wildly rebellious. And so they managed to stop the building project. Okay, but to be fair, when God's people went back to God's place, they had to really two wars, not literal wars. There's the wars of their bad neighbors saying, don't build the temple, but there was their inner war because they wanted to build their places. They wanted to establish a life. They wanted to build a place they could call home. So for 14 years, the building of the temple stopped. Just stopped for 14 years. Okay, that's the story behind the story. And this is where Haggai comes in. Because Haggai is a prophet from God. And his name, by the way, his name means festive. <laughs> like happy party. They weren't anything near that at that time. All right, which takes us to our third point. What does God need with the starship temple? And I'm just trying to be cute there, but this is why. Okay, why did I say that? Because it's a good question. What does God need with a temple? Okay. So when I write sermons, I, I have these, and I've always done this. I learned this from Charles Spurgeon versus, uh, via Alistair Begg. So when I prepare sermons, there's five questions that I, or excuse me, five statements. Think myself empty. Doesn't take long. <laughs> Read myself full. Write myself clear. Pray myself hot. And then be myself. But don't preach myself. That is, don't go to the Bible looking for something to, to use so that I can say what I want to say, but just say what the Bible actually says. So the first point, when I was thinking myself empty, I immediately thought of there's a, there's a movie, Star Trek. It's the final frontier. It's number five of the old Star Trek movies. And the essence of that movie was this. There was a person, it was some kind of like, you know, weird religious figure who leads Captain Kirk and Spock and the rest of the, you know, the crew of the Starship Enterprise on the quest to find God. You know, so they're doing like the, literally the edge of the universe kind of thing to try to find God. And, and they, it's a movie, so they find God. And when they find God, guess what God wants? He wants the Starship Enterprise. 
So Captain Kirk, and I wish I could do a great imitation of him, and I, I tried, and I'm like, nah. But he says, what does God need with a starship? He's God, right? So our question is, what does God need with a temple? Why does God want this temple rebuilt? Okay, let's just think about it. God says, rebuild my temple and ease up on your houses. So the answer is verse 8. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Now, now what is God saying here? Well, first, this is what we have to understand. In the Old Testament, the temple was the physical symbol of, the, of God's presence in their midst. So if you wanted to unite to God, you had to go to the temple. If you wanted to unite to God, you had to go somewhere, and the somewhere was the temple. No other place is offered in the Old Testament. Now think about that as a Christian. If we want to unite with God, we, have to, we don't go to somewhere, we go to someone. We go to Jesus. No other name is offered. Be that as may, second thing, the temple was the center of Israel's like national and religious life. Okay, yes, it was where God dwelt and there his presence was there but it was also where the country's best and brightest teachers could be heard it's where God's people would gather by the thousands tens of thousands at the Passover to meet and to pray with the one true God but then number three and this is the most important thing the temple was the place the place where the sacrifices of the forgiveness of sins could be made stay with me For 70 years, there was no visible act of sins being forgiven. There was no propitiation. Okay, why do I use the word propitiation? Look at verse 8, please. Go into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it. You see that word, pleasure? Okay, so just stop for a second. You read read verse 8 and you're like, what is God's deal? Is he like an ego-driven husband, you know? Is he like that uncle that we all have that makes his wife, you know, wait on him and hand and foot? If you don't know the story, if you don't know God, you you might say, what's the deal? No, this is the deal. For 70 years, in a very real sense, both publicly and internally, so in the very psyche of God's people, the burden of their sin, the burden of their sin had not been dealt with. And they were carrying it. It was in them and it was before God. Now, we know that Old Testament propitiation was limited. It was, it was annual. Okay? But it's something that God said had to be done. So I hope you see the problem. No temple means no forgiveness. And that little phrase, verse 8, that I may take pleasure in, it's a Hebrew word, it's retzi, And it's the New Testament word for propitiate. To be pleased. To be satisfied. As in a debt being paid. So the Jews came to the temple to have their sins covered. Forgiven by the grace of God in animal sacrifice. And apparently at that point in their history. That means nothing to them. Therefore God sends Haggai and says. If the temple is built. I will be pleased. I will propitiate. Your sins will be forgiven. And I will be honored. I will be honored as the one true God who forgives sins, not by works, but by grace. Kind of like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
So in that context, for them to think that they could do well while God was at odds with them, you know, no temple, that they didn't really need the temple, that all their happiness and all their blessing could be in another direction, and the temple was like, ah, maybe, maybe not. They had the conclusion then that, you know, maybe it wasn't a big deal that our sins are forgiven. Maybe it's not a big deal that there is propitiation. You know, wouldn't it be a terrible thing for the Christian to think, oh, okay, my sins are forgiven, big deal. Cross, can I just move on now? Can we just get past this, Joe, the grace? Can we just get past this? No. <laughs> Can't. The Bible won't let us. Listen to Calvin. Your sins ought to have reminded, and this is in the context of Haggai, your sins ought to have reminded you that you need help. Even worshiping me in the sanctuary. But as, I, I, but as I gave you, as it were, a visible mirror of my presence among you, and I ordered a temple to be built for me when you despise the temple, that's the same thing as despising me. So let's just, let's just end this. The stick and brick temple is now the body of Jesus Christ. The temple that was built for Israel was built for a time. The presence of God is no longer in any place. It is in a person, Jesus Christ. And if you are united to him, then the very presence of God lives in you. You are, in essence, a temple. So the presence of God is now found in a personal connection with Jesus Christ and not, you know, some building in East Jerusalem. And so for the New Testament church to preach like or to live like, the fact that our sins, past, present, future, have been forgiven and act like it's nothing and it's not that big of a deal? That, that you know, there's somehow there's so much more now? Only perpetuates a problem that apparently started in Haggai chapter 1. Loved ones, to think that way about sin is to have a really small mind on a very massive issue that God determined to deal with before there was time and space and anything. It's a story of the Bible. Let's just close with this. When, when, when Satan tempts you to despair or your neighbor, Christian or not, tells you, you know, and you stink, not literally, but like your life is like, that you're not good enough, that you're not doing enough. One of the things you could say, you could say, well, maybe that's true and maybe it's not true. But you know, my sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, the relocation of the temple. And, and, you know, there are no more holy places. They're just holy people. Okay, why are there holy people? What did Jesus take from his people once and for all? Their sin. What did Jesus give his people once and for all? His righteousness. And if you're in Christ this morning, you have it. You have it. Now we have a lot more to do in chapter 1. And we'll do it. But we needed to lay that foundation. So that we won't go astray. By way of benediction. And as like Zach said in his announcements. I hope you guys have a wonderful holiday. Plenty of peace. Rest. Deep joys. And the blessing of Jesus Christ on it. So we'll end this way. The Lord bless you. And the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. 
Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.